Hello and welcome to another installment of the Adam History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. And I'm Vedika Khan. Today our guest is Dr. Zeynep Turkilmaz, an assistant professor of history at Dartmouth College. Hi. Zeynep, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for inviting. Today our topic is crypto-Christianity in the Ottoman Empire. Before we get into your research, which is heavily focused on the, the 19th century and the latter Ottoman period, could you give us a sense of what we mean when we're talking about crypto-Christianity in the Ottoman Empire as a whole? Yeah, sure. Um, it's actually one of those uh, delicate questions I've been struggling with from the very beginning of my research. I actually started my project not intending to study crypto-Christianity. I was focusing on mostly Kızılbaş communities, um, Yazidis and Nusaris, Arab Alawites in different parts of the empire, and I was hoping to find stories about them. But when I was doing my research, I came across a lot of references to these groups that were practicing both Islam and Christianity. And it was, if it, at first, you know, I was trying to look to the other side and try to focus on my research and completely uh, turning the other way. Then I came across this reference about um, a priest at a um, Muslim funeral and um, and then uh, some Ottoman officials coming and uh, claiming the uh, the you know the corpse at first it was a big question mark for me but then I realized that uh, there were some crypto Christian communities in Trabzon what they called crypto Christian communities in Trabzon Yozgat Akta Madeni uh, Arnavutluk Albania Ishpat, um, Mount Lebanon, and Cyprus and Crete, and and then I realized that I'm actually dealing with a bigger phenomenon than I thought. Um, and the crypto Christianity as a term is actually 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 a political one as much as a religious and social social term. I was going to ask that it it seems to imply that they are in hiding. It implies several things. It means that um, that there was a secret, inner and truthful life. Uh, that that it's that's authentic as opposed to their you know outwardly fake cover identities. So exactly. there is that kind of an truthful and real genuine inner self as opposed to some sort of outwardly thing that they had to perform all the time uh, when they're out there, right? And uh, there is also an assumption that there were two separate things that these communities knew that they were separate, like. Christianity and Islam were two completely separate things for them, and and then they tried to go back and forth between these two identities. When doing my research, actually, I found that we really need to question those kind of notions, and especially if you are away from the city centers, you know, especially if you are like the the miners I work on, um, on top of a mountain, about uh, two thousand meters. Um, Things get a little blurry. Identities get a little blurry. Religions get a little blurry. Um, and what I I ended up, um, how I ended up defining these communities is that um, crypto Christianity as a concept, as an as a claim, emerges at the very time that these communities become become open and declare, make a political claim. Uh, whereas when they were living their lives, you know, the, the crypto-Christian lives, quote-unquote, they are referred to in different ways. In Trabzon, around Trabzon, Gümüşhane, they are known as Maçkalı or Kurumlu. In Aktamadini, they are known as Istavri. Their differences are marked, but they are not marked as, you know, part of that 
crypto Christianity, this ambiguous actually category and quite problematic category that we impose on them after 19th century. I just wanted to kind of build on some of the things you mentioned there. Uh, in your research, just was wondering if there is any particular moment when these groups really start popping up uh, in, in terms of their history. Like when do crypto Christians have have they always existed throughout the empire? Do they pop up at a certain time and become more visible? Okay, um, that's actually a very interesting question. And um, my senses, my understanding is this is a phenomenon that happened around 17th century. And we really need to do more research on the 17th century. Uh, this We know that Islamization took place as a gradual process and kind of reached to its peak point around 17th century. And it's actually my research also confirms that something happened in the 17th century. It's either Mehmet the Fort's, uh, you know, more zealot policies towards, you know, proselytization or, you know, decline of the, you know, institution, religious institutions of the uh, Christian communities, or, you know, several other reasons. But it seems like around 17th century, some among uh, these mining communities uh, decided to take the path of Islam. But others did not. So these two communities, those who remain Christian and those who took the path of uh, Islam, coexisted, it seems. I mean, the research shows that they actually coexisted. And uh, I'm also a 19th century historian, uh, so I don't know too much about the early modern period. However, the, the region I work on, the Adana region or the broader Cilicia region, has a lot of groups, Armenians and, and as you mentioned, New Sairis, who are in ambiguous categories uh, throughout the Ottoman period. And I remember um, a travel narrative by uh, an Armenian from Poland, Simeon, and he travels through uh, Anatolia during the maybe the maybe the 1630s, and he mentions a, a group which he refers to as half and half Armenians. They're half Muslim and half Christian Armenians. They were strange to him. He's coming from a context where everybody maybe, is something, yeah, right? Yeah. One thing. <laughs> yeah, and he describes how they celebrate some feasts with their Muslim neighbors, but also do like pilgrimage to Jerusalem as Christians. And uh, one of the things he mentions in that narrative is the uh, the effects of the Jalali uh, mm-hmm. revolt in Anatolia mm-hmm. of depopul- depopulating villages, mm-hmm. especially Christian villages mm-hmm. where, um, uh, this is what the sources say, at least uh, disproportionately affected by the Jalali revolt. So I don't know if this could have been another factor. Probably, in the- probably. I Actually, it makes a lot of sense because... It seems like there was some sort of unusual, maybe some ecological change. I don't know. That's uh, the yeah, latest yeah, thesis, yeah, right? Yeah, um, Or, you know, Jelalis can be, obviously, I mean, that's the um, Sam White's thesis. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I mean, that's why we really need to look uh, more closely into that. But um, rather than understanding this as an, you know, Islam imposed on people mm-hmm. or people trying to, you know, keep preserve their ethne under some sort of foreign invasion or seeing them as the fallen ones. I think we really need to recognize these people as individuals making informed decisions. Mm-hmm. And and um, and some Christians took that path 
perhaps in response to some sort of social crisis around them, political crisis around them, uh-huh. and others did not. And I think it's uh, if you can look more closely into the ones that took this decision, I think we will learn a lot more about the Ottoman Empire and how people lived in the Ottoman Empire, not how the state saw these people, but how they actually lived in the empire. And I think that was one of the main questions I had, and I still have when I started doing my research. Right. I mean, the, the thing is, anywhere we go in the, in the former Ottoman Empire during this period, if you're talking about the mountains or some rel- place relatively far from the center, inevitably you're going to find somebody who, some communities that aren't either Orthodox Sunni or they're, they're going to be deviant from, from the norms and in, in at least how they were understood in the center. I, I agree with that. And I actually, I would say that it's not only 17th century, actually early 20th century. Still, if you, yeah, yeah, of course. Um, if you read the reports about Trabzon, um, written by you know Ottoman officials um, around the turn of the century, it's shocking to them to see that. I mean, these places are very heavily um, still Christian, like in terms of um, monuments, monasteries, uh, churches, and the Muslim institutional presence is. Um, liberal um, and very, you know, and you know, Muslims speak Greek. Mm-hmm. Their knowledge of Quran is very limited. They're under, they're, they don't speak Turkish, and for them, obviously, that's a big question mark. They don't, they, um, and they explain uh, Christianization, Tanasur, by ignorance. Um, by the lack of uh, state support for the religion. and uh, But they don't really, obviously they're not PhD students <laughs> trying to understand what's yeah. going on there. But to me, when I was doing research, it seemed like for these people, the difference between Christianity and Islam perhaps uh, was less than um, what it was in the in Istanbul, in Istanbul, or right. any other city center, and any even maybe in Trabzon uh, city center, so for them conversion perhaps didn't mean as big of a change as we as we think today. Uh, well, uh-huh. I think that'll bring us to our main topic, which is the second half of the 19th century, yes. when these categories <laughs> get more hardened. Crypto Christianity has not been studied widely in the in in the Ottoman case. So when I started, there were a few people who briefly wrote about this, briefly touched this issue. And the way it was studied or it was uh, written was, you know, these communities were, were either responding to conscription, yeah, re, re, you know, reacting to con- uh, conscription or trying to gain the favor of the British and Russian and gain some sort of protection. But uh, my, my, concern, my, my main concern was really to understand why these people some of them converted into Christianity, declared themselves as Christian in 1857, and the others basically converted, waited until 1882 in uh, Akda, and then declared themselves Christians. So for me, uh, looking closely to these communities, this kind of lag need, needed some real explanation, not just saying that they, these people were not good, not good citizens, so they weren't willingly joining the conscription, uh, whereas we assume that Muslims did. Um, so when I l- 
started reading documents that I, that I realized that these were all mining communities. And, um, and even when they were living in different parts of the empire, their main connection was to back to Gümüşhane. And then I had to study and understand what Ottoman mining structure was like. And, it, and I realized that it was a whole different issue. And it's very, very similar to, you know, all kind of empires, like world empires, regulation of mining, because mining was an important, you know, crucial issue for any of these empires for fiscal and military reasons, right? They needed metals. Um, so Ottomans were also very concerned about the metal production. Um, and they developed, some of, they, some of them they borrowed and, you know, inherited from Byzantine Empire and other empires. Uh, but the others, they actually, you know, perfected their forms and they created a system that's known as Madan Serbestisi, you know, uh, mining autonomy, where the miners were given some exemptions and privileges uh, for the very hard work that they were forced to do. Um, and um, these um, exemptions and privileges included exemption from conscription, uh, some of the taxes, especially um, non-religious, non-Sharia taxes, uh, the earthy ones, um, and others uh, also granted them some sort of exclusion from outside interference. So we have a very protected mining life, miners' life and mining economy. Um, could I jump in here and ask you a bit more about you know, since we are talking about crypto Christians, I was wondering whether, uh, and the Ottoman Empire, of course, had various kinds of Christians, whether it's Armenian Christians or Greek Orthodox. I was wondering whether within the mining community there is, you know, one particular. What is the makeup of the mining community? They were predominantly Greeks. Uh, there were some uh, Armenians, but they were they weren't as important, as central to the mining economy as the Greek millet was, and I guess that's also a continu continuity from the Byzantine Empire because you know as I um, as I mentioned there was actually an archbishop uh, that oversaw the meters of the miners regardless of where they were. You know how um, you know the. Orthodox Church actually also has its own seers, right? I mean, arch archbishops divide their own um, own terrain and own communities. But what happens is just like the modern service, you know, mining autonomy, where basically the the the, the state appointed trust uh, oversees the matters of miners wherever they are in the empire. Um, Greek Church also had Orthodox Church also had similar structure. Uh, where the Archbishop of Haldia, or Gümüşhane Metropolite, basically took care of the businesses of uh, Greek miners regardless of their location. So they could be in Istanbul, but they would be still seen by the Archbishop of Haldia, uh, Gümüşhane Metropolite, and not the local one. So it seems like there was an overlap of institutional protection and, um, and separation that kind of uh, created a microcosm of mining in the Ottoman Empire where the difference between inside and outside was very clearly marked. And, um, and yeah, I mean, crypto-Christianity perhaps not emerged, but survived and prospered under these conditions. Again, I'm not saying much about its emergence, but in terms of how was it possible for these people to live 
quite an unconventional life mm -hmm. in some ways. I think it was the mining industry, which mining structures that uh, enabled that kind of a dualist life. There are some Muslims working mm -hmm. within the, this mm -hmm. business, but it was predominantly uh, Greek millet. And not every Muslim miner was a crypto Christian, ended up being a crypto Christian. But all the crypto Christian miners, all the crypto Christians I worked on were miners from Gimishani okay, district. So my question is, why were they ever crypto, crypto to begin with? Why were they ever <laughs> partially Muslim or, I mean... Yeah, that's a question that, you know, we, we need to do some more research into 16th, 17th century. I don't know. I really don't know the answer. My census is... I mean, maybe like the, you know, Jalali part you mentioned, maybe just like the, how the Greek nationalists see them, they are the Folomans, I don't know. But it seems like um, for them, that was a lifestyle of choice. You know, they choose to be that way. But I, I don't have an answer why. Mm -hmm. I guess in the, the absence of being forced to make a choice, they didn't have to. So I Maybe they were. We don't know. I mean, that's that's why I don't want to make a conclusive statement about that. Maybe something happened and this particular group of people had to choose to be that way. I don't know. I mean, um, and it's very frustrating for me too, talking about something that I don't know how it started, but I know how it ended. Um, but I mean, there's so little written about these communities in the earlier periods. There's so so little written about mining industry in the Ottoman Empire. There's so little written about how Islamization happened in the 19, in the in the 17th century Ottoman Empire. So we have these you know very broad general studies that look at defters and says this many people converted into Islam at this period, but we don't really know why. When you talk about it like that, it it my my question then would be whether it is a certain politicization or you know the a period in time in in the late 19th century that uh, where they have to actually make a decision about coming out uh, and have to actually give a definition to themselves as opposed to just living this this lifestyle is that moment the moment when uh, in the the Tanzimat period we have a clear definition of, of citizenship is that what is the driving force here uh, there are a number of things. First of all, um, mining industry collapsed by early 19th century. You know, there are s signs that, you know, they're not making a lot of money. There's not much revenue going. There wasn't much revenue going to um, to the center. Uh, the metal production dropped. And it was also a time that, you know, European, obviously, metal production was uh, at height and peak. And obviously... Uh, they have lower transportation uh, costs. Um, and due to over-exhaustion, many of the uh, mines in the Gimishani district were actually um, shut down. Um, there, some of them had gas, some of them had water, so it was impossible for these mines um, to you know, continue forever. And the Ottoman Empire was not willing to invest at that time um, and continue with the old system because this was a time that they were introducing universal conscription, uh, more universal forms of uh, taxation and these kind of autonomies and even, I would say, ex extraterritoriality 
uh, granted to its subjects was becoming problem. Uh, that was part of the story from the state's perspective. From the miners' perspective, obviously, it was very simple. They couldn't feed themselves. They couldn't feed their families, and they, need, they needed they needed to go else else uh, other places elsewhere to be able to make money and continue their lives as they knew it. Um, and some of the ones that stayed in around Gimishan, around the mining districts, but basically all they could do was, you know, apples and pears. I mean, they they grew apples and pears, but you know that that didn't make a lot of money. Um, so uh, they went to places like Konya, Ankara, and some of them uh, went to uh, Trabzon to work at the Trabzon port that was becoming very important at the time. So what happens, I believe, at that time by their, you know, living there in a, in a way, homeland um, of crypto-Christianity or, you know, this kind of places that accommodates um, this kind of um, non-conventional, uh, non-orthodox way of life, um, suddenly in these new places they became unusual, unconventional. They're marked as, um, you know, un uh, unconventional lifestyles. First of all, they were, even if they kept their Muslim identity, they were speaking Greek. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, obviously in Ankara, that's an anomaly. That wasn't an anomaly in Trabzon. But that was an anomaly in Konya and other places. And also, somehow, even in the city center, according to the British consul in, in Trabzon at that time, people knew that, for example, they, they were not uh, performing circumcision or that they only occasionally go to mosques. Mm -hmm. um, and somehow he also claims that um, when they appear at the courts, even as witnesses, they're you know, um, they were not counted as regular Muslims. So it seems like there was some sort of a stigma uh, that was attached to these people once they were in the city center. Mm -hmm. And that also, in a way, pushed them to make a decision. So, I mean, t to stress that this is not an exotic thing per se. It's for not. The, for the period, uh, I could give an example of a document I found where when they're doing conscription in places that haven't usually been supplying soldiers, maybe Albania in the Balkans or somewhere where they had not, uh, people had not been brought into the fold until recently, they actually have to do mass circumcision of all of the uh, new soldiers because y y we have this, this, you know, people outside of what is considered the standard practices in the center. And we can give the case of Nusairis in uh, Syria where during the 19th century suddenly... Uh, there's this big push, I guess, that they have to make a choice. Are they Muslims or not? And there's Only in response to their, actually, protestantization. Right? Exactly. So uh, this, is, uh, this fits within a larger framework of, I guess... It does and it doesn't. In some way, I still think that there is something quite unusual about that. Um, and in the way that actually... Um, I, what fascinates me about this group is their originality, actually. I mean... They are very confident. They are, you know, rough guys that they are quite uh, persistent and um, strong-willed people mm -hmm. who knew what they want. And it seems like what they want was to really bring their hidden half to uh -huh. the surface, rather than getting rid of what was seen as, you know, uh, their cover. Exactly. Um, and I, I, I agree with you know this whole standardization. What we expect. How about uh, the practice of Islam in different parts of the empire? I completely agree with that. And on top of that, I think 
what I would say is um, Trabzon, perhaps city center, can be a place where you see some sort of orthodoxy, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's a you know it's an Islamic learning center, but even I mean, they should be familiar with this kind of widespread, you know, Muslim being Muslim but not necessarily uh-huh. practicing circumcision, but it seems like there was still some sort of stigma attached to Krumlus and Machkalis that they were not necessarily attaching to other uh, Greek-speaking Muslims. Mm-hmm. That's why, for example, even after mid-19th century, when they declare themselves as Christians and claiming that they are going back to their original creed, what they did was not completely get, get rid of their Muslim identity, but they added their Christian identity to their Muslim identity. And there's this quite fascinating um, uh, creation neologism um, that appears around this time. And they actually apparently call themselves, uh, there's a phenomenon called Buçuk Islamiyet. And Buçuk Islamiyet refers to apparently a practice of Islam in the Gümüşhane Highlands, where basically these recently Christianized populations go to mosques on Fridays mm-hmm. and then uh, and the church on Sundays, and that's their understanding of practice. And w- w- you're working on the 19th century, so. How did you find this term? Was it in the archival record? Yes, or yes, is... it was in the archival. Ah, it was written by actually an Ottoman official. Obviously, very frustrated to see this, and he uh-huh. was saying that uh, there were a few ulema in in this you know in this area in Gümüşhane, and what they they immediately requested to me to be moved somewhere else mm-hmm. because it became such a widespread phenomenon that these basically communities are quite comfortable with what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And then he advised us that you know, in mosque and then, and, and um, and elementary school should be open in these areas to correct their belief and and uh, uh, basically give them other opportunities. But it seems like um, I mean that wasn't a very limited phenomenon. It was actually very widespread. What you just described sounds eerily familiar to what Ahmed Jevdet Pasha described during the 1860s when he went into the Taurus Mountains to. They, they called it Iskan to resettle mm-hmm. tribes, essentially to pacify both tribes and Armenian villages there. And he described Muslims who weren't Muslims to him. And of course, he's someone very much associated with the new orthodoxy and the uh, codification of Islamic law during the late 19th century. And it's just interesting to see that whether it's Republican bureaucrats who are still encountering the same kind of... Uh, Mm, surprises or Ahmed Jevdet Pasha or Europeans for that matter who come to the Middle East and say half of these Muslims are actually secret Christians in their eyes they're 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 not real Muslims they're actually truly Christians and they have their own biases so whether you're a, a European seeing Christians who who are in hiding or you're a Muslim administrator seeing bad Muslims we can see how these probably neither of these views actually reflect the way people saw themselves on the ground. Yeah, and also not the way Muslims and uh, Christians around them saw these communities. Exactly. Right, and I, I think I may have uh, given the false impression when I when I pointed to parallels in the other parts of the Ottoman Empire that all these decisions are the same. I think that actually uh, what we're seeing in your case is a bit more exceptional in that you had people who were nominally Muslims who changed... Who, who I wouldn't call them nominally Muslims. No, I, I, I actually try not to say that. Um, I think they were Muslims in their own ways. 
um, we can't know. We can't re- read their intentions. You, you have people who are publicly uh-huh. Muslims mm-hmm. uh, saying that they're Christ- yeah. that they're actually Christians. This is more unique than groups that are considered heterodox Muslims or whatever becoming more uh, Sunnified. That was more of a widespread phenomenon in the Ottoman Empire during the 19th century. What I try to do overall in my research is to show that actually whether we consider these communities Muslim or not is a very 19th century phenomenon. So when we call these communities nominally Muslim or heterodox uh, Muslims, we are still working within the paradigm that was created in the second half of 19th century and actually in response to religious mobilization among these communities. Still, but as far as I understand it, when their hand is put to the fire, so to speak, uh, more communities will will move towards the becoming part of the quote-unquote, let's say, mainstream Islam rather than saying, no, mm-hmm. we're Christians. Mm-hmm. Like, this is a more exceptional phenomenon, it wouldn't is, you say? It is, and yeah, it is in, in the sense that, I mean, I read several interrogation records, right? I mean, and that's something, a, a criticism I have uh, for the earlier works on this, and there's this assumption that after 1856, it's an easy thing to, you know, emerge as a Christian and say, if you are, you know, appeared, whether nominally or uh, genuinely as Muslim, and then at some point decided to change your religion, that was an easy business. It was not. And all these, um, you know, explanations that basically assumes that this was a pragmatist and opportunist choice on the part of crypto-Christians, I think are doing an unfair reading of intentions because if you read their interrogation records, if you look at the policies that are targeted these communities, you actually see that that was a very bold move. And they had to, um, you know, confront the state, state officials, sometimes local ones more than the central authorities. And, um, and they had to struggle to claim this identity. Sometimes it meant that their, you know, corpse of their loved ones would be taken away from them. Um, sometimes it meant that they would be the only Christian soldiers, all, only Christianized soldiers, apostate soldiers in the Ottoman army, Muslim army. Um, and other times it was a threat that their children will be all sent to Yemen, right? I mean, it wasn't as easy as we assume. It wasn't just saying that, okay, if I become Christian, British and Russians are going to favor me and I'll be, you know, granted some privileges and that would be a great life. It was actually a hard life. Um, I wanted to come back to, I mean, you've talked about some some of the state, the Ottoman state's responses to these people coming out. Uh, but I was wondering if um, there is any sense or any idea we have about how the communities they were living in itself responded to them yeah. coming out as, you know, crypto-Christian. That's actually a great question and... Um, and that's why, um, again, not not knowing what really happened and why these communities chose to be different than their Muslim or uh, Christian neighbors. But it seems like whatever happened, happened, and they developed a different identity over time. Again, most of the initial reactions comes from, I mean, we, we get the sources about these initial reactions from the British sources. It's quite striking that there's not much uh, in the Ottoman archives about those reactions. And the British uh, consul in Trabzon says that basically Muslims couldn't like, care less initially. They kind of knew that there was something odd about these communities. But he uses a very strong word, um, actually, coming from 
the Rumi Latin, uh, the Greeks of Trabzon, um, he he claims that they didn't really see it as an um, as something to be cherished by the uh, rooms. They didn't see it as a gain, and they actually talk about you know these crumbless. Uh, they refer to them as animals with no real uh, religious belief or religious creed. So it seems like, at least initially in Trabzon. Greek communities that were not part of the mining networks were less accepting of this change of, that comes after 1856 than, let's say, some of the local Muslims. It changed over time, and uh, some of the, especially local Muslim officers, um, takes extra steps that weren't necessarily um, advised or um, asked by the Ottoman state, yeah. And then, you know, my other question as to the other parties um, would be, of course, the other imperial powers who were increasingly interfering in the Ottoman Empire at the time. And what was their reaction? Oh, yeah, great. Again, um, obviously, Trabzon is next to Russia, right? And uh, Russia is the protector of the Orthodox subjects. And these communities appear as the Orthodox subjects. Um, and what they do is actually they start giving away passports and um, and IDs uh, for these Krumlus um, and Machkalas um, who had difficulty after especially 1859 and they were being conscripted and they had to, you know, go elsewhere to await conscription, right? So what happens is using the Gümüşhane Metropolitan, Gümüşhane Archbishops networks, Gumishan um, um, Archbishop at that time was actually himself an ex-minor. And he saw, he knew uh, about the Krumla story because he was actually a Christian from Krum, the village. Um, and then he actually served maybe um, almost 40 years and he refused to actually get a promotion because he actually wanted to stay and oversee his spiritual children and their well-being. And he was the one that often gave uh, their baptism papers and smuggled them, helped them, you know, um, uh, go to Russia. Um, so Russian response was great. You know, there are now new people and let's um, bring some of those people. And quite interestingly, obviously, this is a time that Russia was expanding southward. So there is a colonization uh, process taking place in the Caucasus. So, you know, some of the, at least not all, but some of the uh, Machgalis and Krumlos that ended up in um, in Russia actually became part of that colonization process, not only as the real builders, because they were all, you know, stonemasons and, you know, they need how to work, how to build, uh, but also in terms of ideological construct, construct, uh, construction of an, uh, you know, orthodox empire that was just another yeah. justification for. So there's this kind of ironic situation where they are, you know, kind of victimized here and then they become as the heroes on the other side. But what happens is they come back. Most of them actually come back uh, with their, you know, extra papers. So the dualism, if there was one kind of dualism before 1857 in terms of their religious identity mm -hmm. and perhaps some other dualism in terms of their names, what happens after 1857 is you see more dualism. So now most of them have both Ottoman and Russian um, Russian papers, both Ottoman and Russian passports. Um, and, you know, they, they have two countries. They go back and forth. So, you know, their lifestyle 
before 1857 enabled and relied on some sort of duality. And after 1857, they just expanded their realm of uh, dualities. But on the other hand, they're living in a changing world. So, I mean, you mentioned the Caucasus and Russian expansion. And, you know, with the mention of this topic, I'm wondering what happens to these communities in the 1880s and in the 1890s and in time periods where, on the local level, we actually are seeing... um, clashes between Christians and Muslims in other parts of the empire. I mean, what, how does, does this community endure during this period? Uh, are they, is revenge taken on them for their ertidat that had taken place earlier? How does that play out? I haven't seen much clashes, definitely not in the sense of, you know, 1890 to four pogroms. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's nothing like yeah. that. Actually, we never talked about numbers, but around Gumishan and Trabzon, um, the, the initial uh, declaration, 1857 declaration, was signed by 44 uh, leading figures from 19 districts, and the list that was given with this to the, this, the British uh, consul in Trabzon was around two t- 20,000 uh, Krumus. Uh, but the idea was that there's a lot more, um, but we never know. You know, we, we really don't have the numbers, how many of those actually registered themselves. Um, I guess there were enough difference and enough acceptance of difference in Trabzon still, mm-hmm. at least as far as these communities were concerned. Uh, you don't really see much clashes. Sometimes, it's like, again, it usually happens at the funerals, mm-hmm. um, claiming the body. Um, was one of the main clashes, areas that you see clashes. Um, and sometimes in terms of uh, right to use medals, and it's a big deal, in again, uh, in highlands of uh, traps on Pontic highlands. So these kind of issues, you, should, you see clashes with the Muslims, and then often the issue becomes one about religion doesn't start as one about religion, but right. it can translate in that kind of a language. But um, even in Akdamadini, where you have a very small community living among Armenians, uh, Muslims, and Greeks who weren't really familiar with the mining networks, I mean, there are clearly outsiders and clearly uh, marked with their difference. Um, actually, something quite controversial also took place there because Kipchoge, one of the leaders of the movement, was actually really prof- um, had two professions, one being imam, the other being papas. And he actually prayed, he led the Muslim prayers at mosques. So once he declares himself, declared himself a Christian, he also joined mm-hmm. uh, the uh, Greek Orthodox Church. That was a little bit controversial, as you can yeah. imagine. But again, uh, I don't have any records of any kind of violence targeting these communities. My sense is that they were very powerful actors, mm-hmm. and they knew what they were doing. And um, and it was, in, it was very radical in one sense, but it wasn't very radical on the other. I mean, people knew about this. It wasn't expressed, it wasn't openly stated, 
but it wasn't as hidden as we assume. Um, and most of the controversies I could find was actually with the state officials and not necessarily Volk. I mean, I, I read two sources, two memoirs that mentions uh, Christianization. Uh, one of them is actually uh, by the mayor of Trabzon. And he says that, you know, Ahmed, Mehmet, we were, you know, sharing the desk at the, you know, primary school, suddenly became Nico Yorgo. And obviously you sense, you know, some sort of frustration, but it is, you know, it is what it is. Um, and another one, actually, again, a local uh, tribes on Muslim, he says, basically, most of these people um, were um, those who were forcefully converted into Islam by Hayrettin Pasha in the late 18, you know, around 1830s. So they were converting back. Maybe some of those people were that. So that's why I think, you know, crypto-Christianity, once it appeared, became an umbrella category, you know. Some of them were probably of Turkmen origin. Some others were like, you know, Alevis or Chepnis of Turkmen origin. Others were those, you know, recent converts. Um, but by and large, I think this phenomenon was not a real hidden, completely cryptic, secretive phenomenon that it wasn't shocking to anybody. And they were very much part of the hierarchies, ethnic hierarchies, religious hierarchies. And they weren't necessarily pushing those hierarchies. And I guess some of the violence, especially, I mean, you know, probably Bruce uh, Masters' work on, you know, Damascus and Aleppo. And, um, you know, they are, in, they, he focuses on incorporation into the, you know, world economic system, right? I mean, here you don't really see that kind of attention. I don't think they are necessarily cha changing the economic equilibrium in the region. It's just that they are making a statement. Well, I want to ask about another topic before we sort of wind down to the end of this story, the end of the Ottoman period. And I don't want to foreshadow, but um, we do eventually see some change here. Uh, I want to ask about marriage. Because if these groups are kind of in between Great or whatever, aren't yeah. there, isn't there a lot of uh, marrying between different religious groups and ethnic groups going on? Or is that like one they, of the boundaries? Okay. Um, they claim that they did not. Uh, one or two biographies available um, on this issue claim that they never... Um, their daughters never married Muslim men. But a few times they uh, actually... Uh, brought in Muslim brides. Big okay. question mark. Okay. Um, but once they actually convert, once, not convert, but, you know, declare themselves as, um, as Christians, one of their standing ground is that they did not intermix with other groups, that they were intermarrying. It was uh, endogamy for them by and large, um, especially in Trabzon and Gümüşhane district. What what is quite interesting about the istavris around Akdama, then in Yozgat and Ankara, is actually uh, they weren't as powerful because you know there was this you know one mining district, uh, and it was a, they were a diaspora group there, um, and they were surrounded by you know a different you know understanding of life and everything. So once they declared themselves as Christians, thirty years after their you know members of their community there. Um, they also tried to keep their two names, 
initially, but after that, they immediately dropped because they realized that it was impossible for them to keep two names and still claim certain rights for them. What do you mean by two names? That they had two first names? Two first names. One Christian? Yes. Like Konstantin Osman. This is the one I love most because, you know, Osmanlı and yeah. Constantine yeah. <laughs> so you know the best That's of the two worlds world. <laughs> uh, two emperors in one person so they like those kind of names and I mean the assumption was that most of the crypto communities actually took names that appear all in all Abrahamic religions like Solomon or Suleiman yeah, yeah uh, Harun yeah yeah but you actually see that a lot of them take Osman Hussein Hassan like clearly Muslim names and they're proud of that I mean there's no question um, but the ones in East, uh, the Istravis around Akdama then had to drop that right away and what they do is actually one of their I think boundary making strategies was to giving their daughters to marrying their daughters um, to Greek community again pushing Quote the unquote, boundaries full-fledged Greeks Full-fled- exactly uh-huh. and again assimilating into the ranks of Greek millet by showing another form of irtidat, right? I mean, you can't really marry your daughter off to, yeah. um, uh, you know, full-fledged uh, Greek millet. But that's my question. You said that they claimed in this period that they hadn't been marrying their yeah. daughters to Muslims. Yeah. Yeah. And so... And also is, not Christians, yeah. Is that, do you think that's a reasonable uh, to believe or do you think that also in that time period there must have been... I mean, do you think that that was a claim made to assert a Christian identity or based on what you know about early modern Anatolia, is it possible that they weren't? I mean, I have my doubts about that, especially in the highlands. I think several things were happening and they had to forget those to make their claims about exclusive identity. Uh, But I think after 1857 in one case and 1882 in the other, Um, marriage was a strategy to assert their different identity. Mm-hmm. In around for the Kurumlus and Machkalas, they had to keep intermarrying to preserve their exclusive identity from Greeks and um, Muslims by and large. Only after I guess you know they fully you know recog- became recognized, they felt more comfortable about uh, the other opportunities. But in the case of Istavris, they really needed to prove that they are Christians. Um, and um, and obviously before 1882, I think there were very little room for them to marry other Christians or Muslims in the neighborhood uh, because they really wanted to preserve their difference. Well, we can maybe imagine where so many of these Turkus about star-crossed lovers, boys and girls <laughs> who aren't allowed to be together, in a context like this, it's easy to see where these songs come from. Yeah. <laughs> So we're going to have to fast forward a little here because I want to get to the end of the Ottoman period. And I think what you've been stressing here in this podcast, and it's something we should keep in mind when we talk about identity, is that identities are really a product of people choosing some kind of option that they have. And so options for identity vary depending on the historical context. And you don't always get to define what your options are in terms of identity. So in the mid-19th century, we get the sense that one of your options was you had to be Christian, Jew, Muslim, but you had to be one of these categories, right? So at the end of the Ottoman period, we see the emergence of ethnic nationalism, and we see that the options are changing. And, you know, to refer to an analogous case, maybe uh, the Karamanlas of uh, Western Anatolia who were Christians, 
but spoke Turkish and had this kind of Anatolian identity. They become part of the population exchanges and, and are sent to Greece without any Greek language. And of course, we see the same thing, Muslims coming from Crete or Bulgarian-speaking Muslims coming from Bulgaria to modern Turkey who don't speak any Turkish. So what what happens with... Uh, quite ironically and quite sad, actually, um, this ex-crypto-Christian, new Christian communities, actually, were fully recognized as Christian for the first time uh, with the population exchange, to be expelled from the country. Um, and that's, I find that quite ironic. I mean, they, their whole ironic, struggle, yeah. Yeah, it's tragic, it's tragic. And I mean, their whole struggle was actually to stay in, this, in their homes, in their towns, in their villages. And um, each time, actually, when I read these uh, reports, um, sometimes police reports uh, complaining about these, uh, you know, Tanasuretmiş, Christianized, Gümüşhaneli and Trabzonli coming back from Russia, you know, you really get the sense that they want to live in this place, you know, that was their homes. And their struggle was not to be, you know, go and work for another, like they are not were trying to betray any cause as it's often, ref, uh, you know, presented in the nationalist historiography or nationalism, Turkish nationalism, and to an extent in the Greek nationalism. They were just being themselves. But that their identity became tools, became mediums in the hands of the state with the population exchange to expel them and not give them any option. Yeah, and the the population exchanges are really bizarre in some way because it's about nationalism, but it's done along religious lines. So, and in this case, right? I mean, the state struggles so long not to recognize them as as mm -hmm. Christians, and the minute that there's this, then they're all suddenly Christians. Yeah, and you mentioned that whether Christian or Muslim, you have this sense that there is an attempt to maintain continuity of whatever this community is, that there is a community that is trying to reproduce itself and protect itself and kind of almost like they're surfing on waves of different tides of history, trying to stay afloat. But in the end, you know, within nation state period, this is one period where we see a destruction of a lot of such in-between communities. Well, we, we've been all over the place in our discussion today, and uh, we've talked about a lot of topics that I thought I knew something about. <laughs> I'm not sure if I know more about them now, or I know oh. that I know less about them now. You know what I mean? I mean, when we open up a, a topic like this that, one, not everybody wants to talk about, but two, that is so hard to study because it's, it's very cryptic, you know, not to make any bad puns, but you just see how complex... Uh-huh. <laughs> Ottoman Anatolia or the Ottoman Empire was in ways that, you know, our narratives that we've received really have not done justice, justice to it. Yeah. So I hope that at the very least we've come away with that lesson that things were very complex and <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I agree. <laughs> but um at any in any case I really enjoyed having you on the podcast. Too, yeah. it, it was a great conversation. Yeah. Um, and uh, I hope our listeners enjoyed as well. For those who are interested in finding out more, we've got a bibliography on the website, the publications of Dr. Zeynep Turkilmaz, along with some other useful uh, secondary sources for the topic. That's all for this episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. Until next time, take care.